is a blessing to be able to open God's Word and look at it together and think about all that God is saying to us in it. We continue this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be spending three weeks in this passage that starts in verse 14 of 6 and ends in verse 1 of, verse of chapter 7. This is our second week. And after I read the passage, I will uh, remind us of what we talked about last week. But this is what the passage says, beginning in 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, another name for Satan? Or what portion does a believer have with a non-believer? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Then he will, then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And though we, uh, we focused last week mainly on verses 14 and 15 and the very beginning of 16, today we'll be focusing on the rest of 16. So last week we asked the question, what is this doing here? This is a strange passage. All of a sudden he's talking about something completely different, it seems, from what he'd been talking about earlier. He'd been talking about how he was begging the Corinthians to open their hearts to him. And all of a sudden he's saying, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And we saw that when we look at the letter as a whole and what Paul's purpose in writing this letter is, We see that he is trying to get back into close relationship with a church that has sort of been persuaded by some infiltrators to distrust him and to reject him. And he's written them a harsh letter and uh, that's made some progress in winning them back and now he's following that up with another letter. We don't have the harsh letter. We have uh, this letter where he's continuing to sort of plead with them to open their hearts to him, but also to stop listening to these super apostles, these false apostles that have come into their midst and tried to persuade them to stop listening to Paul. And so when he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, you know, he's basically talking about these, at least the first group he has in mind, is these people that they've linked up with that they shouldn't have linked up with because they're telling them lies about Christ and about the apostle. Well, that passage that, that we talked focused on last week ended with 
this series of statements, you know, what fellowship has righteous, what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness, what fellowship light and darkness, what accord Christ and, and Satan, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And that's the last one of those statements, the last one of those questions. But then Paul stops there and he elaborates more about this concept of the temple of God. He goes on to say, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And that's what we're going to focus on today, the temple of God. But first I want to bring up something, one of the most difficult things that uh, about the Christian life is how we're supposed to relate to the world. And this passage talks about this, how we're supposed to relate to the world, how we're supposed to relate to those who are unbelievers. There are many things that we have in common with our unbelieving neighbors and and family members and friends and work associates. We're, uh, We're often united by blood. We all are united by blood Originally, we are fellow creatures created by God in His image. We're fellow sinners in need of the redeeming work of Christ. We're neighbors living in the same place, struggling with a lot of the same problems. It's clear we are supposed to be involved in this world and not isolated from it. In 1 Corinthians, Paul had told these same people... I wrote you in my letter, and that is another letter that we don't have written even before 1 Corinthians. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. Or with the covetous or swindlers or idolaters. For then you'd have to go out of the world. And he goes on to say, I was writing to tell you to not associate with people who claim to be Christians and yet live like the world. So it's clear from what he says here, God doesn't want us to go out of the world. He wants us to live out our faith in the context of the unbelieving and immoral people of this world. But living in the world, we get influenced And we get tempted. And our thinking and our living is affected by the people around us. And that's the tension. And so, 2 Corinthians 6, 14-18 tells us that we must also fight to remain distinct from the world. The world runs after dead idols. We worship the living God. We serve Christ. They serve Satan. Usually unconsciously, but they do. We are children of the light. They are children of darkness. We are the sons and daughters of God. They are the children of the devil. Though we are supposed to be involved with the world and interact with the world in the love of Christ, we're also supposed to maintain a certain form of spiritual Separation, not physical separation, but spiritual separation from the world. John says in 1 John 2, 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We're supposed to love the people of the world, but not love their worldliness. We're not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds with, by Christ and his word. And yet, God calls us to be spiritually separate. To refuse to participate in this world's idolatry. As is often said, we're supposed to be in the world, but not of it. Now, I want to point out one thing about verse 16 um, and, and what it starts us talking about. And then I want to make two points about specific things that 16 says. So here he is exhorting them about this principle of not linking up spiritually with the world, not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. But then he stops and he explains why. For we are the temple of the living God. And God has said that he is our God and he's called us out to be with him. So after exhorting them not to be too close to the world, Paul says, we are the temple of the living God. And that God says, I will make my dwelling in them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. You see, Paul doesn't just tell them to not be worldly. He explains why. And this is so important. The Christian life can so easily be portrayed as a morass of morality. Where we're just trying to find out what the right thing is to do and do it. But we lose sight of the very center of it and why we do it. You see, Paul here, he gives the commands, but then he explains who we are and why we should be living like this. Why we should not be yoked with unbelievers because of who we are in Christ. And we can see this sort of in a nice little package in chapter 7 verse 1, the last verse of the passage I read. Since we have these promises, Paul says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. You see, the reason that we cleanse ourselves is because of the reality of the gospel, because of the promises of God, because of our relationship with God. It's not just a list of ways that we're supposed to be different from the world. It is a relationship that we have with Christ that calls us therefore to live differently than the world lives. It's so easy to forget that the gospel is at the heart of it all. We need to keep going back and reminding ourselves of what the heart of it is. You know, in Psalm 92, it says it is good to declare God's loving kindness in the morning and his faithfulness at night. And that's such a good discipline. Because it's so easy to live life 
and even be aware of God in the sense of, no, God doesn't want me to do that. No, God would want me to do that. But forget about the loving kindness and the faithfulness of God. And we need to remind ourselves. It says to declare every morning the loving kindness of the Lord and every evening the faithfulness of our God. The Bible is not content. And uh, Philip actually made this point in Sunday school this morning. The Bible is not content to keep exhorting us how to live without reminding us over and over again of why we're supposed to live that way. And who we are before God that we should be called to live differently from the world. Okay, now there are two things in the passage itself that I want to point out. One is this, uh, this fact that we are the temple of God. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. So what are we talking about? Let's unpack that a little bit. This concept that we are the temple of the living God. God prepared us to understand this concept in the Old Testament. You remember that God told them to make a tabernacle, a tent, where, which would, you know, they were all in the wilderness. After they were delivered from Egypt, they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And in that 40 years, God told them that they should make, they had tents for themselves already. God said, make a tent for me, a tabernacle. And it, he told them exactly how to do it. And what it should look like and how it should be made. And even gave the, his Holy Spirit on certain people to, to be able to have the skill to create it the way that he wanted it to be created. But then once they got into the promised land and they actually built permanent homes and didn't have tents anymore. David, you know, and they got into the city of Jerusalem and David built himself a nice palace. David was king. He built himself a nice palace. But he felt bad. He felt bad that he had this nice big new home and God was still in a tent. And so he said, I'm going to build a house for God. And he began to plan and God sent the prophet Nathan and said, no, I don't want you to build me a house. I will have your son build a house for me. And that's, what a, that's what a temple is. A, a temple is a house for a God. And so Solomon, David's son, built this beautiful palace for God, this temple of God. And God came into it and dwelt in the Holy of Holies in this temple and it was a beautiful thing. But guess what? That temple wasn't actually the temple that God promised. Not ultimately. And Solomon wasn't the son of David that God had promised would build the temple. That temple didn't last. It was destroyed after 400 years by Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon, when he conquered Judah. And the, then they were in the exile for, in Babylon for 70 years and came back and they rebuilt another temple. And it wasn't like the first temple. The old people who remember the first temple wept, but it was still a temple. And God, and, and you know, they still were happy about it. 
But guess what? That one wasn't God's promised temple either. And then King Herod renovated and expanded that temple in the first century before Christ. But that still wasn't the temple that God had promised. For that temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, as Jesus predicted. But God had a much better temple in mind, and a much better son of David. You see, Jesus, the son of David, came to build the real temple, the promised temple, the true temple. And it's not a physical house, but a spiritual house. It is not built by human hands, as all these other temples were. It was built by the greater son of David, who's also the son of God. And it's no longer built of lifeless, inanimate rocks and stones. It is built of redeemed human beings. Peter calls them, or us, in 1 Peter chapter 2, living stones. So Jesus is building this temple, even now, He's continuing the construction. He turns people into living stones. Even though their hearts are hard like a rock, he gives them hearts of flesh and turns them into living stones. And then he brings them and puts them into his temple. And he's building them. And it's getting bigger and bigger and more and more beautiful as the days wear on. When the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 asked Jesus about Where is the proper place of worship? Because her people, the Samaritans, worshipped on Mount Gerizim. And the Jews worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus referred to the transition between those old days where we worshipped in a physical place and the new days when it would be different. Woman, believe me, he said, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So no longer does God reveal himself according to a certain location. He now reveals his presence according to a certain association, a certain relationship. Where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst, Jesus said. In Matthew 18, the temple of God is where he lives. It's no longer a place, it's a people. Believers in Christ, therefore, are the New Testament temple of God. If anyone wants to find God, he ought to be able to do so by going where God's people are gathered in the name of Jesus. For God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. Now I love that phrase, I will walk among them. Not only does God 
live in the temple of his people, but he walks among them. This also, I believe, represents something of a shift from the old way of thinking about temple to the new. We expect that in his temple, God will be sitting on a glorious throne. And so we, he does. I mean, we have pictures in the New Testament that are given to us with God on the throne in his temple. But it's not just that picture we're given. Here, God is not just sitting on his throne. He's walking among his people. He is relating to them. He's interacting with them. He's associating with them. You see, God doesn't just rule over his people from on high, though he does do that. He doesn't just send love notes, though he has done that in spades in the New Testament and the Old. But he also comes among us. He comes into our midst He shows himself. He shows up among his people. Now, he doesn't show up physically. Jesus ascended to heaven in his human physical body, and he is now at the Father's right hand, hidden from mankind. But he is present with us spiritually through the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes we say, we'll be with you in spirit. You know, when someone's doing something, we can't be there, we'll say, I'll be there in spirit. We mean by that, that we wish we could be there. We're thinking about you, even though we're absent. And maybe even we'll be praying for you. We'll be with you as much as it's possible for a person who can only be in one place at one time to be with you, who isn't actually there. But when we say that Jesus is with us spiritually, on the other hand, we're talking about something completely different. He's not just thinking about us from afar. He's not just rooting for us from heaven. He is actually with us. Though not physically. You see, Jesus is human, but he's also divine. And in his divine nature, he's not limited by location. He is not stuck in one place at one time like we are and will always be having a human body. In one sense, he is everywhere. In another sense, he has the ability to make himself manifest, to show up in one place in a way that he doesn't in another place. And I think that's what we're talking about here with this language of walking among us. Jesus makes his presence known to his people. He allows us to feel his presence, to experience his love as if he's giving us a physical hug, to know his nearness and his loving kindness firsthand. It's as if he is walking with us, walking among us. As if he's physically here in our midst. That's the reality. So Jesus is present with us in a way that, uh, that's real, though it's not visible or physical.
And part of this picture here is that is like a home that we are sharing a home together. That we have our home in Him and He has His home with us. A temple is a house for God and the temple is His home in a sense. He is He comes to be among us and makes us His dwelling place. And likewise, He becomes our dwelling place. You know, when I was in high school, my family was shattered. I thought we were a happy family. Thought, you know, had no reason to think that that uh, we weren't going to be a family that would endure a long time. Other people envied our family. But suddenly, within a couple months period, my parents suddenly weren't married to each other anymore. My mother was married to another man. And my siblings no longer lived in our house. Now, it could have been shattering. But God had prepared me for it. Six months before the big crisis, God had drawn me into His family. He gave me a new home before my old home blew up. A home with God. And a home with His people. And think about all the people who come from dysfunctional homes or broken homes or even violent, abusive homes, and yet have found in Christ and His people a strong, secure, loving home. And this is what we're talking about here, where Christ comes to dwell with us. Some of you have had much worse experiences than I have. And in spite of your experience in your earthly home... God has brought you into his home. And it's such a beautiful thing. There's another phrase in this verse that I want to point out. It's where God goes on to say that he will be our God and we will be his people. Perhaps the happiest thing that God could ever say to a human being. Perhaps the happiest thing a human being could ever hear from the mouth of God is, I will be your God and you will be my people. God doesn't speak this way to everyone. This precious promise that God is our God and we are his people, it is found in many places throughout the Old Testament. And though the vast majority Most of them are in the Old Testament. And though that's true, almost all of those places in the Old Testament where it says this are pointing forward to the way God would relate to his people in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, when God wants to communicate to man about the glory of the day to come, when God's spirit would be poured out upon mankind, when his law would be written on man's hearts, when God would enter into a new and better covenant with his beloved people, 
When God would take away their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. When God would cause his people to walk in his statutes. When God would set his sanctuary in the midst of his children forever. The language he uses over and over again is this language. They will be my people and I will be their God. Jeremiah 24. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 31. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Jeremiah 32. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. Ezekiel 11. You will be my people and I will be your God. Ezekiel 36. I will be their God and they will be my people. Ezekiel 37. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Zechariah 13. Over and over again. These promises are given of a day when this kind of relationship would exist between God and His people. And this is today. This is what we have in Christ. This is what the people of God only had hints of in the Old Testament. But now we experience it. This is what God has done in Christ. Now it's not just a hope for the future. God is our God and we are His people. And what a remarkable privilege it is to be able to call God our God and to have him say, the, the God of, universe, of the universe look down upon us among all the people of mankind and see us through his beloved son and say, I want that one. That one is mine. And in Christ, he gives himself to us to be our God. You know, in this generation, in my opinion, this younger generation, there is just such a vast, dark aloneness that that is being experienced. Because, you know, so many have cast aside the reality of God and they're they're not thinking about life in context of God anymore. And what, what does that leave you? It's, yes, you have others around you. But what, what poor companions they are. They have, they have left God and they've lost God and they are alone. But what a privilege it is to be one who is not lost who is not alone, who is not wandering around trying to figure out life for himself, how to live and why we're here and what I should be doing and having to make it up on our own. We have been made for a reason. There is a good God on the throne and he is our God. You know, the big in the minds of many, the big question of life is, Is there a God? Is there some ultimate goodness? Is there some real purpose for why things are the way they are? And is there some destiny? Is there some life after death? But you know, there's actually a more important question than this. And that question is this. Is God your God? You know, you can have all the right answers about those former questions and even enjoy a little bit of comfort from feeling like you know the answers to those questions. And yet still you are godless and empty 
and doomed and alone if God is not your God. But if God is your God, that changes everything. For God is with you. You know, when it says he will walk among them. I will walk among you. There is no greater way that God ever fulfilled that than by sending his son into human flesh so that he literally walked among us. He literally came alongside. He walked on the same ground we walk on. He showed himself to be so close to us as to be a fellow human being with us. And now he is our God. And if he's our God, then everything is different. For if God is for us, who can be against us? And who has God? Who, which person who has God can say, I'm poor. I'm alone. You can't say that. You have the greatest treasure that there is. And you have the greatest companion that there is. And if you feel alone, you've either forgotten God or you don't have God. Maybe you've never had him. But he is there. And he says to people, I am your God and you are my people. And if you've, he's never said that to you. If you've never felt that personally from him, don't pursue anything else in your life until you have obtained that. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened to you. Ask, and it shall be given. We come now to the table of our Lord Jesus. Where we remember that he came. We remember that he became man. And we remember that he died. And that his coming and his becoming man and his dying was the foundation of our salvation. He, the Son of God, became the Son of Man so that the sons of men might become the sons of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you now. We thank you that you are a God who calls us. That you are the good shepherd. And you called your sheep to yourself. And we know, Lord, that since the Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. Because you have provided for us in everything. And though, Lord, you sometimes provide for us in a way that... We still feel poor. We still feel like we're going without. We know that you give us all good things. That you give us everything that you know is best for us to have. 
And so we repent, Lord, of our unbelief. And we rest in your sovereign goodness. And we know, O Lord, that you are indeed the great treasure. That no matter what else we experience in this life, we are rich if we have you. Now, O Lord, feed us with yourself. For in this world, there is nothing that can satisfy us. Bless us now as we partake of this sacrament. We pray that you would make yourself felt among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.